Welcome back to Emmaism, a philosophy podcast for students of philosophy, because that really is what we all are, seekers of knowledge. Happy Friday, and it's time to philosophize again. I'm back with another bioethics series. The last one, in fact, because I just ended my time being a TA for a bioethics class, and it was so much fun to teach. I'm wishing my students the best of luck on their final exam, and I hope this podcast helps them prepare. This episode is the second of the series that spans from human research ethics, what we just heard, to moral obligations of the start and end of life care. There's content in between that, like influential codes in personhood, but the one you're listening to now is on influential codes in the history of bioethics. So we'll just get started. We're going to start with the Nuremberg Code, the Declaration of Helsinki, and then progress on to the Belmont Report. So... A little bit from last time, um, I just explained this in the, the last podcast, but just to overview, in August 1946, um, an International Scientific Commission on War Crimes was set up to meet up, um, decide on war crimes that happened during the Nazi period. And this really focused on one guy, Carl Brandt, um, who did terrible things to lots of patients during the Nazi, Nazi time in the Third Reich, actually. Um, and uh, the trial was a part of a series of American trials designed to hold Germans accountable under international law for crimes against humanity, war crimes, and membership in a criminal organization. So that's the background of the trial. Um, the code basically signified a loss of self-regulation for the medical profession because they were thinking if these are judge-made rules, then the medical profession was risking losing control over the core of what it means to be a self-governing autonomous profession. And so it really bothered doctors. And the code ended up specifying 10 guidelines that outline the formalized standard of ethics. Um, The first is that voluntary consent is absolutely essential, so participants should be at the liberty to bring the experiment to an end, too. Um, That's that's also, I think the first and the tenth guideline go together. Those are the two. Um, Second is that the experiment has to be unprocurable by other means or methods of study. It can't be an unnecessary thing that we're doing. It also has to be conducted in a way that avoids all unnecessary suffering and injury. Um... You know, the Nuremberg Code also put forth that experiments must foresee a kind of possibility for positive yield of the goodness for society. Um, The risks have to be less than the humanitarian importance of the problem. There has to be proper preparations and adequate facilities for patient safety. Experiments also have to be designed and based on results of previous animal experimentation in natural history. Um... The Nuremberg Code ends by saying two things. Um, One is that no experiment should be conducted if there's an a priori reason to believe that death or disabling injury will occur. And they say that the exception to this is that experiments can have experimental physicians also serve as subjects. And it ends by saying experiments must be conducted only by scientifically qualified people. That makes sense. So it's really like on first glance, not that restrictive, but it was seen as restricted at the time and very much upset the medical profession. So what after Nuremberg? The Declaration of Helsinki. And it kind of was, it it eclipsed the Nuremberg Code in 1964, but it, it isn't really seen by the U.S. and particularly the FDA um, as being very good because it has an unfavorable opinion on placebos. It's very, very long. It's longer than the Nuremberg Code. 
The Declaration of Helsinki is an echo of the Nuremberg Code, and it breaks new ground, too. It affirms the importance of informed consent, but it additionally provides guidance for conducting research on subjects who cannot give their informed consent, and it insists on the review of research protocols by independent committees. It also discusses the use of placebo controls, and it declares that consideration related to the well-being of the human subjects should take precedence over the interests of science and society. So, yeah. Um, I'm just going to go through some important points in the declaration, just line by line. So I'll just kind of give you a good, um, a good overview of which ones are the most important. So in, in the introduction to the declaration, the second principle says that it is the duty of the physician to promote and safeguard the health of people. This is really significant because it's not just a job, it is a duty. A job is something that you do nine to five and go home and you play Minecraft when you go home, but a duty is something that you have a moral obligation to fulfill. Um, it Someone else's right exacts you to do that duty and fulfill it, so that's pretty significant. Um, the fourth principle is an acknowledgement um and it says that medical progress is based on research which ultimately must rest on past experimentation involving human subjects so this kind of qualifies medical research as a field where we have to do human experiments um we can't do something else because that's just not adequate medical science relies on this kind of behavior which is why the declaration's in place so it affirms the significance of it Number six um, kind of posits that the primary purpose of medical research involving human subjects is to pr improve the prophylactic, diagnostic, and therapeutic procedures and understanding the etiology and pathogenesis of, di of disease. So etiology is the set or um, set of causes, the cause, or the manner of causation of a disease or condition. Um, pathogenesis is the mechanisms by which a disease could develop, progress, and either persist or is resolved. So, I mean, we're, we're looking, this is again another qualification of like why we do medical research, and it's to improve the lives of patients. Um, and when thinking about this, we just have to consider back at what it declares, which is that the consideration related to the well-being of human subjects should be taken precedence over interests of society and science. So it, even though it is for the people, um, it's also for the science. And so we can't look beyond the people that are suffering from a trial that could potentially be happening. So the declaration progresses from the introduction to basic principles for all medical research. And um, three uh, tenets in particular stick out to me, number 13, number 19, and number 27. Um, and so those respectively are the fact that experiment protocols ought to be submitted for consideration, comment, guidance, and approval to a specifically appointed ethical review committee. So that's something like the Institutional Review Board. Um, number 19 is that medical research is only justified if there is a reasonable likelihood that the populations in which the research is carried out stand to benefit from the results. This looks a lot like um, the Nuremberg Code and, and the um, risks mu must be less than the humanitarian importance of the question. Um, 
Number 27 was quite interesting, which was the fact that both authors and publishers have ethical obligations. Um, when I was working in health economics and was helping author some papers about clinical trials that had occurred, there were a lot of ethical guidelines that I had to um, submit to and kind of just write responses to because um, they obviously respect the Declaration of Helsinki and see it as worthwhile to the future and um ethics of their publication venue so pretty interesting and then um some additional principles for medical research and um those are kind of at the end of the decoration number 19 sticks out which is that at the conclusion of the study every patient entered into the study should be ensured access to the best proven prophylactic diagnostic and therapeutic methods identified by the study. This is very significant because after the trial concludes, you might have patients in the placebo group or the you know con- active controlled group who didn't get the most effective treatment. You need to give them the most effective treatment. So that's what number 19 posits. And then um, Article 2, Section 3 of the Declaration has the unfavorable opinion on placebos that caused the FDA to reject it at its primary code of ethics governing medical research in human subjects. So that's just of note. Um, I'm going to talk just really briefly about um, the role of institutional review boards. And per FDA regulations, the IRB is formally designated to review and monitor biomedical research involving human subjects. The IRB has the authority to approve, require modifications in, to secure approval, or disapprove research. The purpose of the IRB is to assure both in advance and by periodic review that the appropriate steps are taken to protect the rights, interests, and welfare of human beings participating as subjects in medical research. And the fact that the IRB is looking at these clinical trials raises the question of rights versus interests. So what is each? um, Are they different? And why are they different? So a right is something that other people have an obligation to observe. Rights and duties are correlative. If I have a right to X, then someone has an obligation to give X to me. To say one has a right is something that is, it's a very, very strong claim. Interests are something that would be good for something someone to have. Non-human animals have interests, certainly. They can feel pain and do not desire to be tortured. It's hard to believe that non-human animals don't suffer, which is why interests are, exist, why we consider them. But how powerful are those interests? Some utilitarian philosophers argue that not all human beings have rights, but interests may be more morally significant for them. Peter Singer has asserted that not all human beings have rights. Some very impaired or dependent human beings may not have rights. He says that we might respect those people who are so profoundly disabled because other people care about them and in that way they have interests. This is very problematic. Peter Singer is actually not allowed to speak in certain parts of Germany um, because he has said this. So, you know, rights versus interests is a very important debate and it has serious philosophical, political, and social um, consequences. So the IRB measures rights and interests of studies because, you know, they, they oversee studies at different points in time over a drug's development. So pretty, it's important. So that's the Declaration of Helsinki. Now, the, the big one that is very, very influential is called the Belmont Report. And the National Commission um, 
1974 to 1978, is generally viewed as the first National Bioethics Commission. It was established as part of the 1974 National Research Act, and the commission is best known for the Belmont Report. It identified um, fundamental principles for research involving human volunteers and was the basis of subsequent deferral regulation in this area. The charge to the commission was to identify the boundaries between biomedical and behavioral ethics, The road to the Belmont Report was a wave to increase the power of medical interventions, the increased frequency of randomized control trials, um, greater public investment in research, and intensified media interest and skepticism after a series of incidents and scandals beginning in the 1960s. Um, So, I mean, it, it it solidified these principles that would shape morals and restraints on researchers. It was primarily primarily written by Thomas Beecham, who co-authored Principles of Biomedical Ethics, which is a, you know, the foundational text of the bioethical discipline. So it's a very interesting report. And the entire book um, of Principles of Biomedical Ethics is based on uh, what was basically written in the um, Belmont Report. So the setting the scene for the Belmont report, there's boundaries between pa- practice and research. When a clinician departs in a significant way from standard or accepted practice, the innovation does not in itself constitute research. The fact that a procedure or treatment is experimental does not automatically put it in the category of research. Research and practice may be carried out concurrently if and only if research is designed to evaluate safety and efficacy of a therapy. So, you know, taking this boundary between practice and research, the first three solidified principles governing human research ethics were, one, respect for persons, which is often just written shorthand as autonomy, two, beneficence, and three, justice. So the big principle is respect for persons. And while they're not listed in lexical priority, um, you know, autonomy is one of the first considerations anyone will ever bring up in any bioethics case. So respect for persons entails kind of like a two-part claim, which is that individuals should be treated as autonomous agents and people with diminished autonomy are entitled to protection. So respect for persons in that way invokes two moral requirements. One, the requirement to acknowledge autonomy, and two, the requirement to protect those with diminished autonomy. Um, The respect for persons principle demands that we give weight to autonomous people's considered opinions and choices while refraining from obstructing their actions unless they are harmful to others. Um, Something to note here is that respect for persons also is compatible with the... the, um, you know, kind of widespread conviction that not every human being is capable of self-determination. There are severely impaired people out there, and the second um, moral obligation that's exacted from this principle, which is the requirement to protect those with diminished autonomy, doesn't negate the specialness and uniqueness of those people. So, yeah, that is autonomy. Then there's beneficence. Um, Beneficence says, you know, it's actually derived from the Hippocratic maxim of do no harm. And you know, just kind of a fun thing, side note, is that the Hippocratic Oath actually doesn't say do no harm in any translation. One translation of the oath is um, one that actually reads in this way, I will abstain from all intentional wrongdoing and harm, but that still does not yield primum non nocere. Do no harm, primum non nocere, does appear in the epidemics. Um, 
at least do no harm is cautionary. First do no harm is precautionary. So what does that actually even imply for research that rests on maxims of the Hippocratic Oath? It doesn't even exist in the Hippocratic Oath itself. But beneficence holds that people are to be treated in an ethical manner, not only by respecting their decisions and protecting them from harm, but also by making efforts to secure their well-being. General rules that are formulated as complementary expressions of beneficent actions are one, do no harm, and two, maximize possible benefits and minimize possible harms. There is an obligation to give forethought to the maximization of benefits and the reduction of risks um, that might occur from a research investigation. And there's also, you know, the obligation to recognize long-term benefits and risks that may result from the improvement of knowledge and from the development of novel medical, psychotherapeutic, and social procedures. So, you know, what does this imply for research that presents more than a minimal risk without immediate prospect of, um, you know, the direct benefit to the people involved? Um, Does beneficence make it so that we cannot embark on those kinds of research experiences? It's unclear. The Belmont Report finally puts forth justice, and this big principle is accompanied by a big question. Who ought to receive the benefits of research and bear its burden? That's what justice is. Justice is about distribution of of, um, uh, benefits and burdens. So in this question, um, the one of, you know, who ought to receive the benefits and who ought to bear its burden, um, there's a sense of fairness of distribution and what is deserved. The concept of dessert and how things ought to be kind of put out in society and, you know, attributed to different places. Um, an injustice would occur, you know, the, it's a... Uh, something that happens contrary to the principle of justice, it would occur when some benefit to which a person is entitled is denied without good reason, or when some burden is imposed unduly on them. Um, formulations of the principle, injust- a principle of, of justice um, can happen in, in five different ways. So the first formulation is to each person an equal share. The second uh, formulation is to each person according to individual need. The third to each person according to individual effort, the fourth, to each person according to societal contribution, and five, to each person according to merit. So these one, these formulations seem to contradict each other, but th- that's the principle of justice for you. The Belmont Report goes over these three principles, respect for persons, beneficence, and justice, and relates them to human experimentation and progression of the medical field and um, scientific knowledge. So I mean, it's pretty interesting to see how the Nuremberg Code, then the Declaration of Helsinki, and the Belmont Report developed their historical significance and what they actually talked about in the text. So they're just, they're pretty interesting documents and they're always referred in any bioethics class. And they're also taught in the first year of medical school at most, most accredited, AMA accredited medical schools. But That's it for this episode in the series. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to take a look at my book, How to Excel in Undergraduate Philosophy, on Amazon and all other major bookstores in both print and digital. That's all I have for today's episode of Emmaism. Keep looking on for the next one on personhood. Thank you for listening. And until next time, keep searching for the truth.